Um, This morning, I want to invite you to turn with me over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be looking at chapters 11 and 12, very famous story, the story of David and Bathsheba. But I hope that as we go through these chapters that um, I'll be able to share some things with you that perhaps uh, you hadn't seen in quite the same way. Uh, This is a story that's been painted. It's been told on Hollywood screens. And uh, it's a story that uh, most people have some general knowledge of. And yet the way God inspired this story and the way it is recorded for us in Scripture, it is a goldmine of information. You can study this passage over and over and over again and always find wonderful new insights um, that the Lord has placed in here. Now, even though this is a very familiar story to many people, it is filled with some very unanswerable questions. Questions that we might wonder about, but which the inspired author gives us no information on. For example, as we read the words of David committing adultery with Bathsheba, they're all words of action. David sent, he took, and he lay with Bathsheba. But what's he thinking? What's he feeling? What's his motive behind this? Is it pure lust? Is there there any other possible motive that he might have? And why does Bathsheba come? Does she come because she's attracted to David? Does she come because she fears the king? Does she come because she doesn't really know why she's being summoned and it's only after she gets there that she finds out and then she feels like she has no choice? As she's bathing on the roof, did she purposely position herself so the king could see her? Or was it an accidental uh, thing? David's walking along his roof and oh my, all of a sudden, you know, there she is. Is Bathsheba, who's, who's married to Uriah the Hittite, an Israelite? Or is she also a foreigner? Is Uriah a foreigner? Is maybe he a second generation Hittite who's been living in the land for some time? We can go on and on and on and ask a lot of questions that we cannot give specific answers to. Now, we can suppose, we can say, well, I think this and I think that, but the writer ignores all of those issues in order to focus in on the sin of David itself. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to trace these three key words, the words sent, took, and lay, as they occur throughout the story. And maybe you didn't realize this before, but we can trace a trail of these three words through the entire story of David and Bathsheba in chapters 11 and 12. And as we trace these words, we begin to see things Uh, that the writer is trying to communicate to us about this sin that we might overlook otherwise. Now, first of all, we're told in verse 3 that David sent and inquired about the woman, and once he realizes that it is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, that should have been the end of the story. She's someone else's wife. In fact, we read later 
in 2 Samuel chapter 23 that there was an Eliam who was one of the mighty men of David. May very well be this same man. And this Eliam was the son of a guy by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel had been a trusted counselor of David, but he betrays David when his son Absalom wants to try and steal the throne away from him. And some scholars believe that the reason Ahithophel betrays David is over this incident that takes place right here because David defiled what would be his granddaughter in this case. But we're told two things about Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Surprisingly, we read in the next verse that David sends for her. Once he knows who she is, why does he send for her? We read later that Uriah the Hittite is another one of David's mighty men, one of his trusted soldiers. Why would David violate a trusted soldier by taking his wife when this soldier is on the battlefield fighting the battles that David should be fighting? And so it's really a shocking uh, opening scene here. And this is the David up until this point we've been cheering for. We know him, we love him, we've been waiting for him to come to the throne. We've watched him flee from Saul. We've watched him not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, but wait on God's timing. We've seen him crown king of Judah, later king of all Israel. We see him show great kindness to uh, Mephibosheth. We see him winning all of these wonderful victories, and we're like, go, David, all right. And then all of a sudden, we come to this. And it's such a shocking, shocking scene. David's sending, this word send, it occurs 15 times in chapters 11 and 12. We read it over and over again. And once David sends to inquire about Bathsheba and then sends messengers to get her, a whole link of sending is set up by that initial sending. For instance, David sends for her, her, he lays with her, she returns to her house, and then in verse 5 we read, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. David's sending is responded to by Bathsheba's sending. Now, I, I like to word it this way, that when David sent for Bathsheba, Using biblical language, he planted a seed in her womb that has now become this child that she says she is pregnant with. And so when Bathsheba sends to David, basically what we're hearing is David has reaped what he has sown. He sowed a seed, and now he is reaping the consequences of that by hearing that this seed is in fact growing into a child. I'm pregnant, Bathsheba says. That's not the end of the sending. When David hears this in verse 6, it says, David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Three more sends in verse 6. And so the original sending of messengers to inquire about Bathsheba and to bring her back has now resulted in all of these other sendings that are going on. The sending to Joab, the sending for Uriah, Uriah being sent back to David. 
And of course, it appears that what David is trying to do is get Uriah back in Jerusalem in hopes that he will go down to his house, spend the evening with his wife, and it will look like the child then is is, uh, Uriah's. One of the things that we see as all of this sending is going on is that sin begins to weave a very complicated web. One act leads to another that leads to another, that leads to a reaction, that leads to another act, that leads to a reaction, etc., etc. It's never true that uh, a sin only affects one individual or that a sin between two so-called consenting adults only affects the two of them. No, this sin has ripples. It's like throwing a pebble in a pond and you watch the ripples spread outwards. David has sent... And now there's all sorts of sending going on. Some of this sending is out of his control, and that's why he keeps sending, because he wants to get the situation back under his control. So originally, David had control of the situation, and he sent for Bathsheba. But he didn't have control of the situation when she sent back and said, I'm pregnant. But now he's trying to regain control by sending for Uriah. If I can get him to go down to the house, we can quiet this thing. We can cover it up. But of course, as we continue to read the story, as you probably know, Uriah comes, but Uriah refuses to go down to his house. He says, how can I go down and spend the evening with my wife when all of my comrades are out on the battlefield sleeping in tents and fighting the battle. I can't do such a thing. David tries a couple nights. The next night he gets him drunk in hopes that, you know, not being in his right senses, Uriah will go down to his house, but he doesn't. And so finally, David determines if I'm going to maintain control of this situation, I have to send again. And so uh, in verse 14, it says, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And of course, in that letter is Uriah's death sentence. David figures that if he can't cover up the pregnancy by having Uriah go down to his house, then he's going to have to eliminate Uriah and take Bathsheba for himself so that everything looks more proper, I suppose. So ironically, Uriah is sent back to the battlefront with his own death warrant in his hand. Joab does even more than what David commands him to do. And uh, once Uriah is dead, we're told that Joab sends a messenger back to David. And so the sending continues until finally we reach the end of chapter 11, And we read in verse 26 and 27, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. Now it seems that this last act of sending by David will solve all of his problems. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba has now been sent for. She is now his wife. She is now a part of his harem. End of the matter, so David may think. But notice that the verse goes on 
And it says she became his wife and bore him a son, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord or was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's that little line right there that tells us that this is not the end of the story as David might hope that it would be. And it is also interesting that this is the first time in the story that we hear anything about the Lord's thoughts concerning this entire event. Well, that's the end of the story concerning David's sin. But now we want to back up and look at two other words that are also involved in describing David's sin. So when we go back to chapter 11 and verse 4, we read that David sent messengers and took her. This word take is a a normal word that is used in Hebrew to describe someone taking a wife. Uh, It is also used, however, in terms of sexual relations as it is here. David took her. But interestingly enough, if we go back earlier in the books of Samuel, we go back to 1 Samuel, chapter 8, invite you to turn back there. 1 Samuel, chapter 8, In this chapter, we read the story of uh, the elders of Israel coming to Samuel and demanding a king. They want a king over them. And so the Lord comes to Samuel and he says, give them what they're asking for. And Samuel complies with what the Lord says, but before he complies, he says, okay, I just want you to know, however, what you are in for when you ask for a king. And so beginning in verse 10, chapter 8, it says, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked for him a king. And he says in verse 11, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. If you skip down to verse 13, it says, he will take your daughters. In verse 14, it says, and he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards, and so on. In verse 15, he will take a tenth. In verse 16, he will take your male servants, your female servants, etc. And in verse 17, he will take a tenth of your sheep. In other words, you want a king, be prepared for what you're going to get, because kings are takers. They have the authority, and they have the power, And they need a political machine, after all, if they're going to govern. They need an army. They need supplies for uh, the administration and for the palace. And so I want you to know that if you get a king, understand a lot of what you have is going to be taken from you. Now, there's two Hebrew words used here for for take, but one of them is the word that is used of David taking Bathsheba. The sad part about this word is up until this point in the story, David has never been a taker. He has always been willing to wait on the Lord and allow the Lord to give him whatever the Lord's will and desire was to give him. He wouldn't even take the kingship from Saul. He said, far be it from me to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so all of a sudden, we see this terrible transformation And the one who came to the Lord with open hands saying, Lord, whatever your will is, whatever you want to lay in my hands, I'll be faithful to it. 
to now the one who says, hey, I'm in charge here, and I want that, and so I'm going to take it. And it doesn't matter who's involved, who it hurts, I want it. And so David takes Bathsheba. Now, we don't see this word again for the rest of this chapter, but when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see it six more times. So let's move on to our third word in verse 4. And this is the word lay, or can also be translated as sleep. This word occurs eight times in chapters 11 and 12. And two times we also have the word bed. And the word bed comes from the same Hebrew root as the word to sleep or to lay, which makes sense, doesn't it? So technically we have this Hebrew root 10 times in our story in chapters 11 and 12. So we're told that David sent messengers, he took her, she came to him, and he lay with her. Ironically, when David sends for Uriah, and Uriah comes back, and it's clear that David wants Uriah to go down to his house and spend the evening with his wife, we're told in verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. This is the same word. New King James here translates it slept, but it's the word lay or sleep. So very ironically, David wants Uriah to sleep with his wife, but Uriah sleeps at the door of the palace, refusing to go down to his house. David confronts him about this in the, in the morning. The servants said, you know, Uriah, he, he slept here all night, didn't go down to his house at all. David says, what do you mean? You've come from a long journey. You didn't go down to your house. And notice Uriah's words in verse 11. And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah knows exactly what David is getting at. You've come from a long journey. You didn't go down to your house and get your feet washed? No, I didn't go down there and lie with my wife because all of my comrades are out in the field fighting and sleeping in tents. So Uriah becomes this very strong contrast here to David. Uriah, who's out in the midst of the battle, sleeping in tents with his comrades, refuses the comforts and the luxuries of lying with his own wife, whereas David remains at home in Jerusalem and does what Uriah said, I wouldn't dare to do. So through this word, we get a strong contrast, you see, between the character of Uriah and the character, at least in this occasion, of David, what David has become. Well, um, let's move over into chapter 12, and we'll continue to trace these three words. Now, these words begin to evolve. Their meaning begins to shift as we get into chapter 12. They are no longer only focused on David's sin. They now become the focus of David's judgment and the consequences that David will experience because of his sin. 
So we remember all of the sending that took place in chapter 11. Most of it involving David sending or Joab sending people back or whatever. Well, chapter 12, verse 1 begins, Then the Lord sent. The Lord sends Nathan to David with a story to convict David of his sin. So no more is David doing the sending. The sending has passed now to the Lord. In other words, the Lord is about to deal with David's sin and confront him uh, with his sin. So the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and Nathan gives this story. There were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So this is the story that Nathan shares with David. Notice in these first four verses again, we have all three of our key words that had described David's sin. First of all, as we've already pointed out, instead of David sending now, it is the Lord sending in verse 1. As Nathan tells the story, he, he talks about this little ewe lamb that is the only precious possession of this poor man. And one of the things that he says this ewe lamb does is that it lays in his bosom. So that's one of our key words. In verse 4, we read that a, a traveler comes to the rich man, but the rich man refuses to take from his own flock, which is large, and instead he takes the poor man's ewe lamb. Obviously, the ewe lamb here is a reference to Bathsheba. And we have these same key words. They're occurring with little different nuances now. Laying in the bosom is a much prettier picture than the idea of laying with another man's wife. But still, we have these key words popping up. And this idea of taking is central, as it was back in chapter 11. And it's this taking and this lack of compassion and pity that the rich man has that angers David so much so that he explodes in verse 5. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and had no pity. Well, it's at that point that the jig is up, right? Nathan lets him know what is really going on here, that David has in fact pronounced sentence on himself. And so he says in verse 7, you are the man. And he goes on to give the word of the Lord, speaking about all of the things that God has given David. Notice how often this expression occurs. Uh, in verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you so much more. 
But David, what have you done? In verse 9, you have killed with the sword Uriah the Hittite, and you have taken his wife to be your wife. And so uh, Nathan confronts David with this dual sin of murder and adultery. And as he begins to describe God's judgment on David for the sin, one of the things that he says in verse 11 is, the Lord, uh, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives from your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son." Two of our key words occur there. God says that he is going to take the wives of David. What had David done? He had taken the wife of another man. And so as a consequence, he will see more than one of his wives taken. What else had David done? After he took the wife of another man, he laid with her. And so the Lord says, You'll see someone take your wives and they will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. What you did, you tried to do in private, but this thing that I will do will be done before all of Israel to see. Now here is an example once again that we see uh, the scripture teaching us that we reap what we sow. We also see in this judgment that The Lord's judgments are always just. They always fit the crime. David had taken another man's wife, therefore his wives would be taken. He had laid with another man's wife, therefore someone would lie with his wives. Um, As we continue to go on in verse 13, we do have this confession of David that is so significant to the story. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now David did deserve to die, didn't he? He had murdered another man. Just as he had taken a wife and laid with her that was not his, and his wives would be taken and laid with, he had murdered another man, and therefore he deserved to die. But God said, uh, he, would, he has put away David's sin and he would not die. Here is amazing grace that we sang about this morning. Here is uh, an example of a man who really deserves no kindness or no goodness from God, yet inexplicably, God showers his grace on David. Now, I think that one of the reasons he does is that David is truly repentant. Unlike Saul, who constantly made excuses for his sins when Samuel would confront him. Oh, you know, I did it for this reason. Oh, it was the people's fault. And on and on Saul would go, never taking responsibility for what he had done. David claims responsibility. No excuses. You're right, Nathan, I did this. I've sinned before the Lord. And as a result of that honesty and that true repentance, the grace of God is poured out. And he says... Uh, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, sin can be forgiven, but there are still consequences, aren't there? As we said, sin never affects just one individual. It has a ripple effect, and it affects those around us. And so 
God lays out several judgments, several consequences that David will experience. Among them, his wives being taken and someone lying with them. And among others, very sadly, this child that is born to the adulterous uh, union will die. And the reason the Lord says that this will happen in verse 14 is because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Therefore, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. In other words, it, if Israel is to be a light to the nations and an example of worshiping the true God and, and the holiness of the true God, if, if, not, if there are no consequences that David faces for his sins, the nations will blaspheme. They'll say, what kind of God is it that David and Israel serve? They can just get away with anything. And so, very sadly, the child pays a price uh, by forfeiting its life. Now, perhaps when, when we look at this whole idea, uh, it's, it's obviously very sobering. I'm quite sure that had David been giving the, given the choice, he would have given his own life in exchange for the child's life. But he wasn't given that choice. And so it was a painful consequence of his sin that he would have to experience. As a result of that, sometimes when we experience the consequences of our sin, this is important, even when we have repented of it and we experience the consequences, we can doubt that God has forgiven us. We can doubt that God loves us. We can doubt his grace in our lives. I've done this horrible thing Lord, I've confessed it to you. I'm sorry for it. I'm trying to live for you, but now I'm experiencing all of these consequences. And so, Lord, have you really forgiven me? Am I really loved? Is grace still a reality that I can experience from you? This story assures us that in the face of consequences, God still loves us. God still pours out his abundant grace on the sinner. It reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews says over in Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read with you beginning with verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there without a, with a father that does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's such an important passage for us to remember when we're experiencing what we've sowed, when we're reaping what we've sowed. 
If we've confessed it to the Lord, if we've been repentant, we can be assured of his forgiveness. We can be assured of his love and his grace. But part of that love is a discipline. As the writer of Hebrews says, never pleasurable when it is happening. But later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness. The purpose for God's judgment here in David's life is not just because God got upset and disappointed with David and said, how dare you? I'll show you, David. I'll do this to you. God's purpose in judgment is to reform David, to rehabilitate him, and to draw him back into uh, a right relationship. And that's God's purpose, by the way, in any form of judgment. In many passages of Scripture, that can be illustrated. But as we go on to read, David knowing the mercy of God, even though he's received this word that the child might die, what does he do? He begins to pray and fast that the Lord might spare his life because he knows how gracious God is. What I want to draw your attention to is verse 16. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. There's our word again, that word lay. But notice the difference in context. David is not laying with a woman who is not his wife. He is laying on the ground pleading for the life of his child. Notice the difference in context that our sin uh, can present to us, can draw us into. Without this sin having been committed in the first place, David is not laying on the ground pleading to God for the life of his child because obviously the event never would have taken place. But once again, it's just a very ironic and poignant way in which the biblical writer says to us, okay, you can brazenly commit sin against God, but I promise you, you will reap what you have sown. And so these words are coming back to David. Send, take, lay. But now they look very different than when they looked when he invited Bathsheba into his bedroom chamber. But as the writer of Hebrews says, that God's discipline is for the purpose of bringing us the peaceful fruits of righteousness. And so we're going to go to the end of the story now, and we're going to see these same three key words appear again. And this time they appear in the context of grace and forgiveness. So as we come down to chapter 12 and verse 24, we read, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Notice the difference in circumstances here. There's quite a few things that show us that uh, David and Bathsheba have been set on a new path, that the past has been forgiven, and that they're being given a fresh start. First of all, it's interesting to notice, having a windy day here, aren't we? It's interesting to notice how 
uh, verse 24 begins. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Those are all very important words. If we go back over the story, there is nowhere in the story up to this point that there are any words of kindness or compassion or love expressed by David for Bathsheba. Back in chapter 11, she is merely an object. He saw a woman bathing. He sent for her. He took her. He laid with her. I'm pregnant. Oh boy, now we've got a mess on our hands. I have to murder her husband. And after he kills Uriah, he then sends for her and incorporates her into his harem. It says that she's mourning over the death of her husband. But there's no words of comfort from David. There's no compassion being expressed at the end of chapter 11. Only the expedient words of, and David took her as his wife, gathered her into the harem. Ah, all's okay now. Everything's covered over. It's only at this point in the story, once David has been confronted with his sin and repented of his sin, that compassion is resurrected. And this is one of the wonderful things that happens when we submit to the judgment of God. When we humbly bow our heads and face the consequences uh, that are, are the result of our sin. They bring a new heart. They bring a humility, a compassion, a softness, a tenderness that we didn't have before. This is not the hard David of chapter 11. This is the compassionate David who realizes that this woman, Bathsheba, has lost both a husband and a son. And so now he reaches out to comfort her and to do the only thing that, that he can do. He can't restore her dead husband. He can't even restore her dead son. But what he can do is give her a new baby. And so we're told that he lay with her. And now the word lay that had once talked of David's horrible sin in chapter 11, that had talked about the consequences he would experience in chapter 12 as someone would lay with his wives and as he lay on the ground all night long, now the word lay occurs in a gracious context. How do we know that? Because we're told that Bathsheba bore a son. First of all, the gift of children is always seen as a blessing from the Lord in Scripture. So this birth of a son tells us right away that God is now blessing this relationship. But it goes on more than that to tell us that the Lord loved him. So the Lord is embracing this child, accepting this newborn son called Solomon, so much to the point where the Nathan prophet says God has given him a nickname, and his nickname is Jedidiah. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. In fact, Jedidiah comes from the word David. It's almost as if Solomon is being called David Jr. And so God is accepting Solomon as a beloved son, as a young David, and declaring his love for him. That's phenomenal. That God now has placed this couple on a new plane so that they can begin their life, uh, restart it. Now, there's scars 
There's things from the past that they'll always carry with them and never forget. And yet God's grace is giving them a new start. Now in the midst of this declaration by the Lord, we're told in verse 25 that he sent word by the hand of Nathan. So just as God had sent a word of judgment at the beginning of chapter 12, now he sends a word of grace and forgiveness. Well, you might be asking, well, where's the word take? I don't see the word take here. Well, the story isn't over. In verses 26 uh, through the end of the chapter, we read about the conclusion of the war with the Ammonites. And this is really what had prompted this whole thing to happen in the first place. David had sent Joab and the men out on the battlefield to battle the Ammonites. He remained in Jerusalem. That's when he saw Bathsheba, and this whole thing took place. So now the story is being wrapped up. Now that David has been confronted with his sin, has repented of his sin, God has set him in a new context of grace. Now we also read about the conclusion of the war. And this conclusion is not only in the favor of Israel, but in the favor of David. And we're told in verse 26 that Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon. He sent messengers. Notice that word send. But here the sending is a good thing because he's saying, I fought against Rabbah. I've taken the city's water supply. The city's about to fall. You need to come or else it'll be called by my name rather than yours. So in verse 29, David gathered all of the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. And then in verse 30, then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. What we're seeing is a further pouring out of God's grace on David. He has given victory over his enemies. He has given the, the spoil and the abundance of war. And so... Uh, God's declaration of love for Solomon, his blessing of a son to the union of David and Bathsheba is multiplied also by giving David victory and an abundance of wealth. All a way of sealing uh, this idea that God has forgiven and that God has set David on a new path. Now we know that new path isn't going to be easy. David is going to continue to experience other consequences as a result of his sin, beginning in chapters 13 and following. Nonetheless, David is a changed man. He is a man who has found humility. He is a man who has refound the compassion that he had lost. And he is a man who is now going to walk closer to God than ever, no matter what adversity might bring his way. So I hope this morning, as we have traced these three key words, maybe you see yourself in, in one of these periods, uh, hopefully not in the first, but let's be realistic, we're all human beings and make mistakes. Maybe you find yourself in that sin period and you're desperately wanting to take control of it. The sin's gotten out of control. And so you keep sending and doing whatever you can to cover it up, to fix it, but you can't. Because what is needed is to submit to the judgment of God. Maybe you're going through uh, experiencing some of the consequences of your sin, feeling judged and unloved by God. What you need to hear this morning is know that in fact, if that's happening to you, God is declaring his love for you. 
He's trying to uh, take away the, the dross and, and rub off the rough edges and shine you up to be the diamond that he wants you to be. And part of that is going through the discipline and submitting to it that God uh, has for you. And then again, maybe this morning you're, you've confessed, you've repented, and you've seen God's grace renewed yet again. Praise the Lord for that. The Lord is in the business of repairing destroyed lives. Sometimes we can look at a life and we can say there is no hope for that life. And then all of a sudden, the word of the Lord comes in, the person responds to it, and they become really literally, don't they, a completely new creation as the New Testament talks about. Maybe that's you this morning. We should be rejoicing and praising God for what he's doing in your life. But also be aware that just because you've experienced this renewal, this forgiveness, this love, it doesn't mean that the road ahead is all full of sunshine. There will still be difficulties along the way. You may still even experience some of the consequences for your past sins. It doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven you and he doesn't love you. It just means that's part of the reality of him bringing his discipline into your life so that he can abundantly pour out more of his grace into your life. So this story really has many, many different levels to it. This is only one uh, of the paths that we can take in examining this story this morning. But I hope that it speaks to you in, in one way or another. And if you don't find yourself in any of those three situations this morning, you can praise the Lord for that, but it, hopefully it will also uh, make you meditate and think about not even wanting to get into that sin in the first place. But if you do, knowing that there is that hope of forgiveness for those who come to the Lord and, and repent.